If you're listening to this show, you probably know something about working dogs, or at least your kind of dogs. But the working dog world is surprisingly big, and it includes some fascinating subcultures that go on thriving with most people, even dog people, unaware. Of course, it's easier to go unnoticed when you're nocturnal. Welcome to Farm Dog. This is Farm Dog, the podcast about the working dogs of farming, ranching, homesteading, and rural living. Farm Dog is presented by Goats on the Go, a national network of independent business owners who provide sustainable weed and brush control for their customers using goats. Want to put goats to work on your vegetation problem? Interested in launching your own goat grazing business? The place to start is goatsonthego.com. Welcome to Farm Dog. I'm your host, Aaron Steele. I am thrilled today to be joined by Josh Michaelis. Uh, did I say your name right, Josh? Michaelis. Michaelis. Yeah. You'd think we would have covered that in our chat before we hit the record button. So I apologize. But uh, Josh is here with us. Josh is with uh, Joy Pet Food and High Standard Pet Food and is the host of another Working Dog podcast, Fueled by Joy Working Dog podcast. I've been listening to it a little bit, and I, I recommend that you listen as well, farm dog audience, especially if you're interested in tree dogs and coon hunting and uh, the sporting dog world. I think that you'll find his podcast really interesting. So, Josh, welcome once again. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're located, what your part of the world looks like, and your history with dogs maybe a little bit? Yeah, yeah. First of all, thanks for having me on here, Aaron. I've enjoyed a lot of your episodes, too. They're on the Farm Dog Podcast, but I'm uh, I'm in North Missouri. I'm dead center of the state, about as far north as you can go. Uh, we're a couple miles south of the Iowa line there in Mercer County. Uh, I've been around and have been infatuated with dogs from an early age, five, six years old. Uh, my grandfather coon hunted. He, he raised both me and my brother a good majority of the time during our, our adolescence. And we spent a lot of time in the woods with him. Uh, as I got older, I branched out into other, mostly hunting dogs. Uh, I got my first blue healer, I think when I was 16 and I've, I'm always been a, a, a fan of Australian cattle dogs, but, uh, I've had English setters. I've had beagles. I've had fox hounds. Uh, but a majority of my life has been spent, uh, chasing raccoons with tree and walkers. And that's where I compete at now. Uh, I compete at a very high level events and it's become, you know, it, that, that sport in itself has changed a lot over the years and we've changed with it. And, uh, dogs have always just been, uh, a center, the center of my life for the most part up until my kids were born. And now, now they take a close second. <laughs> <laughs> so you told me before we started recording here that, uh, Friday evenings and weekends, you are either training and preparing for a coon hunting event, or you're about to jump in the truck and leave for one. So what does this weekend hold? Uh, this weekend we're preparing, I'm home this weekend, uh, which is usually about two weekends a, a month I'm home and the other two, uh, I'm on the road, but, uh, there's a large event down in Kentucky where we're hunting for a brand new 2023 Chevy Tahoe. Uh, it's a pro sport event. Uh, we have entries for that and we don't quite have the dog power yet. I've got two young females and so we're trying to get them there. And that requires on weeknights when I do have to work the next day, I hunt at least two to three hours, uh, five to six nights a week. And then, but Friday nights, I spend a 
good time out there. We'll get we'll get a good six, eight hours in tonight and, and then we'll sleep in tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Do you do this year round at the same pace? I do this year round, not always at the same pace. Um, a lot of it just depends on the dog that, that I have in the kennel or the dog that I'm working at the moment. Some of them don't need that much. Uh, some dogs, two to three nights a week, one hard night, couple easy nights, you know, older dogs, they're, they're good to go. You don't have to worry about it. But in this heat, uh, where we turn loose, it's hot and the dog's got to be in fantastic shape. Otherwise they're in danger. And so we try to make sure and get as many miles under them as we can that way you know when we run into a real hot night down south in kentucky probably in august it's going to be a little warm so we're going to keep them in the best shape that we can possibly keep them in right okay so i think it's interesting as one of the cool things about this podcast for me has been to see um the crossover in the dog world you know and yep. how uh herding dog is basically a hunting dog of a type and yep. you see a lot of the same instincts come through and there are uh stock dog breeds that are you know one of their best talents is in the search using their nose to gather cattle and livestock over a large area and that's something that had never occurred to me you know before i got a little bit deeper into this world uh, but at the same time even though we're kind of a small community i guess in the sense of um, working dog enthusiasts we're each our own little niche too. So I bet there are people out there listening to this right now who, when they heard that you are going to be competing uh, at an event where the top prize is a brand new truck, you're looking at what, a sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 prize there. I yep. bet a lot of those folks said, oh my gosh, I had no idea that it was that intense, that serious, and that kind of prize money at stake. And somebody who's only coon hunted his whole life probably would be shocked to learn at the prize money and level of competition in the stock dog world. Yes. So tell us a little bit about how you first got into competition and maybe describe for us what a coon hunting competition is like. Sure. Uh, I've always been, uh, sometimes at my detriment, a competitive guy. Uh, and I think that anytime you have a working dog, I don't care if it's a beagle, foxhound, a, a stock dog, uh, whatever, you're always going to think it's better than your neighbors. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so competition just comes naturally. Uh, it's been around a long time. Competition raccoon hunting has been around for as long as two people have had dogs that would treat coons, I have no doubt. Uh, but I got into it at an early age. I think I won my first cast when I was 13. Um, but it's a uh, it's changed so much over the years uh right now there are people like myself you know i'm a i'm a podcaster for joy dog food and i do a lot of work for joy dog food but i consider myself a professional coon hunter you know that's what mm -hmm. i do uh that's how i got into uh the business and how i got on with joy dog food in the first place so you know it's it's changed a lot to where it's not just a sport. It is a business now. Uh, we have big sponsors. We have big kennel clubs. Um, there's guys that are winning three, $400,000 a year. The top handlers are, uh, you know, we give away, there's kennel clubs that give away a brand new truck every month. Uh, they'll have 14 or 15 trucks given away every year. Uh, there's hundred thousand dollar hunts. There's a $20,000 hunt every weekend. you want to go to one? Wow. And so it's became, uh, quite a, an, a sport that's just evolved over time to where it has become a business. And, 
and you'll get some negative feedback about that stuff. Uh, the money's taken over the money, this, but there's, there's all kinds of levels to this guys can, I started with an old grade Walker dog that I hunted, you know, with my grandparents out of an old Ford LTD and we throw the dogs in the back seat. Uh, most of these guys that are winning big and doing this for a living started the same way. And if they work and, and they do the, the little things and they, they put their mind to it, they can become successful, but it's just like any business, you know, whether it be farming or, or basketball or coon hunting or anything, the harder you do it and the more you focus on it, the better you're going to be and the more successful you're going to be. And everybody starts low. There's not very many people that started a high point in this sport, but, uh, the actual coon hunt itself, uh, it's going to vary from organization to organization, but a uh, vast majority of them start out with, you know, some of them will be up to 300 dogs. Some of them will be as low as 12 dogs. And they'll go out, uh, four dog casts. Uh, they'll have a guide. They'll have a judge. They'll have four handlers. Uh, those dogs are turned loose, and points are scored, and points are kept. And there's a scoreboard on a scorecard, just like there is any other sporting event. And the dog with the most points at the end of the night wins and advances. And most of them are advanced to win. Uh, some of them are not the large open events. You have to have a really high score. So even if you do win your cast, uh, you may not advance to the late round unless you have a higher score than others. But a vast majority of them are just beat the three dogs that you're turned loose with, and they'll give you another three dogs. And you continue until that's done, and then the last dog standing is the winner. How many competitors does an event like this one you're going to be going to soon attract it'll it's a 64 dog field uh they put the entries up for sale usually about a month in advance and the first people that call and get the entries are the first 64 that'll do it okay. uh, there are other events there's open events uh there's large ukc events like autumn oaks uh winter classic grand american where they'll be anywhere from 500 to 900 dogs uh, it'll be huge week long deals. Oh my goodness. But the level of these, these are high entry fee hunts. Um, I think $2,800 is the entry fee for, uh, that hunt down there in Kentucky. Some of them go as high as 7,500, I think is the highest entry fee hunt there is. And, uh, those are limited field and not a lot of guys can afford that. I can't afford that. <laughs> Luckily, I have guys that back me that that pay the entries, and then we split the money if I win. And that's what a vast majority of these guys are doing. Uh, they have a they have a, a a guy backing them, or a company backing them, or a sponsor that pay the entry fees. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so you know I've got lots and lots of dog questions, but I can't couldn't help this one popping into my mind. I I'm gonna assume that these events because you have to be close to a landscape that can support a population of coons right. and you got to have some space to run dogs i'm going to assume these events aren't near large cities typically no they're about as middle in the nowhere as you can get and still have lodging for everybody and stuff like that for everybody um there are raccoon hunting clubs all over the country and so a club will host the event and they have their own guides. Uh, the organization and the club get together for judges, and they'll take the casts out. And it's a rural area. It's a rural lifestyle. Uh, most of these guys are very rural people. Uh, salt of the earth, I like to call them, uh, just like you guys. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very, despite that, it's a very diverse community. 
Uh, there's a lot of African-American coon hunters. Uh, there's Chris Saunders, a good friend of mine, was born in Brooklyn and is one of the top coon hunters in the circuit. Uh, you know, uh, there's uh, Hispanic coon hunters. There's you name it. Uh, it's a diverse community, but it's a rural community, most most generally. Sure. So I'm thinking about some of these smallish towns uh, on the weekend of one of these events in every hotel and campground getting filled up with yes. people who go out at night or gone all night and come back to their hotel rooms and sleep all day. That, that's got to turn a community upside down for a little while, doesn't it? It does. Um, the major events are held in places like Richmond, Indiana, which I would call I live in a town, I was born in a town with 300 people in it, and I live outside probably a mile from a town that's got 50 people in it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I would call these cities, but they're, you know, 15, 20,000 people, and then we'll pack in another thousand and fill every motel, fill everything, and, you know, everybody buys their food there, everybody visits the restaurants. It's a big boost to the economy, and th those cities really do enjoy uh us having them Salem, Salem, Illinois, Aurora, Kentucky, um, uh, Richmond, Indiana, uh, places like that, uh, Jewett, Texas, they're, they're really welcoming to us. And, uh, despite, you know, we are a bunch of hillbillies, you know, in the long run, no matter how much you, you refine yourself, you know, myself here, myself included, uh, we are a little bit hillbilly, but we, we come in and we spend a lot of money and we do very good for the local economy. So most of these towns are very welcoming. Yeah, I bet they are. But I bet they are confused by the maid service at first at these hotels where you, yeah. everybody's got their do not disturb signs on their doorknobs yeah. all day long. while they're... Yeah, we, uh, we come in right when the motel breakfast usually starts. <laughs> so we'll, <laughs> we'll get us a quick supper that's also breakfast, and then we'll hit the sack until about 2 or 3 in the afternoon usually. <laughs> what kind of dog uh, wins these events, what are you looking for in a dog um, as far as drive, stamina, nose? Mm -hmm. um, and, and what sorts of things are you perhaps looking to avoid if you want to be a competitor at that level? Hey, farm dog listeners, I'm going to cut in real quick here before Josh answers that question and invite you to support us in one of several ways. Uh, the easiest is probably if you take that app you're listening to this episode on right now and just leave us a quick rating or write us a line or two of a review of the podcast. You can do that in most podcast apps. It's especially easy and especially important if you do that for us in, po in Apple Podcasts or in Spotify. That would be extremely helpful and supportive um, for the show. Uh, also, uh, if you go to farmdogpodcast.com, as always, you'll find an email form there where you can send us a quick message, uh, either with a question or comment about a previous episode, or maybe a recommendation for a topic for a future episode, or even uh, you might know somebody who would make a fantastic guest for a future interview on Farm Dog. We'd love to hear about it, and that has already been tremendously helpful for us in booking guests so far. So please keep those coming. 
And as long as you're at farmdogpodcast.com, consider clicking the shop button at the top. There's some merchandise that you can purchase to just kind of show that you support the show. It, it gives us a few bucks, but it's probably more important for our morale. Um, you're just saying when you buy a t-shirt or a hat with either the farm dog or goats on the go uh, logos on it that you like what we're doing and you'd like to see it continue. Uh, Goats on the Go is the presenting sponsor of this show. Other than that, we don't do much in the way of advertising. So get yourself a shirt, get yourself a, a cap or something else, and um, you'll be sending us a couple of bucks and telling us that you want this thing to continue. So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your support. Um, they Talent is important. Uh, track talent a quick tree dog that doesn't mill around that's going to get treed quick Uh, we've got to have a dog that's pretty loud because these dogs have big motors and sometimes they're a long ways away from us but the main thing everybody looks for is heart Uh, they've got to want to do their job all the time no matter what's going on around them because these dogs go through a lot of pressure they're they're living in a dog box they're not home very often Uh, they have a hard time getting comfortable Uh, everything's a new place everything's a new area and so it's hard to keep one that is, it, it has to be there mentally all the time. and has to be really focused on its job and not anything that's going on around it because independence is a big deal uh, at the level I hunt at. You know, these dogs don't tree coons together. They tree coons apart. And mm-hmm. so they have to ignore, you know, tens of thousands of D- years of DNA that say they need to be in a pack and they need to get away from dogs. And so that's that's an extra level that we put on a dog and the pressure that we put on a dog and some of the most talented dogs in the world can't handle that, uh, that part of it, that aspect of living on the road. And, uh, those dogs are very good dogs and they, and they'll live very long lives with a very happy customer and very happy owner if we sell one like that, but they're not suited to our needs. So we, we got to look for heart. We got to look for heart and focus and, in the training process, we hope everything else comes out, you know, as far as the talent side and just the aspect of having a coon in its tree and things like that. I think that's pretty universal among all types of working dogs is that, that heart, that desire to do the job, you know, can take the place of talent in some cases, you know, or you could do with a little less talent, but you can't do with a little less heart. You know, you need a dog that just loves the work and finds its reward in doing the work. Yep. Yeah. Go ahead. Stock stock dogs are a fine example of that too. Uh, We've had, my brother raises border collies. He's got a large horse ranch and he has cattle and, you know, those dogs that can't take a kick or that can't take a little bit of this or a little bit of that, they're, they're not going to be the best herding dogs and they have to really, really want it. And that's what they have to be focused on. And it's not just, like you said, it's it's a it's a common denominator amongst all working dogs. I don't care what their job is; they really have to like it. Mm-hmm. You you hit on this just a bit already, but I've often wondered as I talk to stock dog people who are into trialing um, their cattle dogs or sheep dogs or whatever, if there are some dogs that can do it at home perfectly all the time and they look like champions at home but they just can't handle the daily grind of the travel, the dog box, the staying at a hotel, the having to relieve themselves in a parking lot, you know, that sort of thing. And that just messes with them so much that they're, uh, 
their true potential isn't going to come out. And so you end up the best trial or competition dogs actually end up being the ones who can, yes, they have the talent and the heart, but they can also tolerate the lifestyle. Have you seen that? Yeah, that is a, that is a major deal in our sport, just like all working dog sports. But, um, I've had super uber talented dogs that didn't travel well, that, that were nervous wrecks on the road. Um, one, one of mine just passed here, 13 years old, raised him from a baby. He was either owned by me or my brother pretty much all his life and probably the most talented dog I've ever owned, but just could not hold up because some of these weeks, some of these events are a week long and you'd get him out there on Monday night and he would just look like a rock star and he would just start falling apart and he wouldn't eat well and he couldn't travel well and, and strange places, you know, bugged him out. And that's, that's a very common occurrence amongst amongst our community and amongst a lot of communities and so yeah you got to have one that i i want to say is a little ignorant <laughs> you know those you we breed for intelligence because it equals trainability but also they have to be able to ignore things around them and super uber intelligent dogs have a hard time that's why i've always been fascinated with with herding dogs because they're a, a super intelligent breed i mean mm-hmm. as far as iq wise go they're about as sharp as they come. And so I've always thought if a guy could keep, you know, a herding dog relevant on the road and active on the road and good on the road, he could probably do it in our sport as well. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, produce your own puppies? You produce your own litters or do you buy from outside breeders all the time? We do a little bit of both. Um, most of the dogs that we campaign are raised right here or by my partner, Jed Finley. Um, most of them are, are bred, at least bred. Uh, we, we hunt our own stock of dog, our own line of dog. Uh, but there is occasion where, you know, we'll raise a puppy up to 13, 14, 15 months old. And we don't like to have a lot of litters, you know, one every year and a half or so out of quality, quality male and female crosses. And then, uh, there's the opportunity or there's the, the times when the 13, 14 month old just ain't quite going to cut it. Uh, it's going to be a good coon dog. It's going to make someone real happy and they're going to, they're going to love it until it dies of old age somewhere, but it just isn't quite good enough for us. And then we'll have a gap there. And so we'll have to fill it. And uh, that's the situation we're in now. We have, uh, two females. One was bred by us and, uh, it was out of one of Jed's stud dogs and we bought it back. And then we have a couple others here, one that I'm trying and one that we've purchased already but we also have two 11 month old puppies that are probably going to make it. And so we're just using them as gap fillers to get by until those dogs are ready to compete. Mm-hmm. It seems like in all of the working dog sports, the competition side of things versus the day to day side of things that there is, um, there seems to be like a dividing line. Like there's the, the sport has to be, um, designed in a way that separates lots, the best dogs from all of the rest of the pack. Mm -hmm. And so you, you end up designing the game in a way that is not so, so much like how you would be doing it on a day-to-day working basis on a farm or on, if you're just out for fun, just out for the leisure of it. And so what are the distinctions between, uh, those dogs that make it for you? I know we hit on this a little bit, but 
maybe a better question is if I just want uh, to go out a, a, a night a week with my kids and chase raccoons and I'm never going to uh, enter a contest, should I buy a puppy from you? Or is that where those ones that didn't work out as competition dogs could make me real happy still? Um, the good part about coonhounds is training is going to be a big part of that. Um, most of my dogs, and not all of them, but most of my dogs are a pleasure to hunt through the week. Uh, from when a guy has to hunt five, six, seven nights a week, uh, you want a dog that comes to you when you call it. You want a dog that when you're done, it can be done. And sometimes that doesn't always transfer to the competition side of it. But as a as a majority of the dogs that we raise, they make good pleasure dogs too. But the, you, there's a give and take with everything. Um, when you put that good handle on them, when you do certain things to them to make them more pleasurable to hunt, you're, you're taking just a little bit away from the, the competition aspect of it. And you nailed it when you said that how the rules are set up are not necessarily conducive to how a guy pleasure hunts or how a guy enjoys the sport. But there are a lot of levels to our game. Uh, there's there's the lower levels where that guy that just wants to hunt one night a week with his kids uh, can still take that dog out and compete and be competitive. You know, if a dog's good about having its coons and, and good about going hunting, it, it's still got a chance at some of the lower levels. But as you get higher and higher into some of these higher-end events, uh, it takes a very special animal. And a good i would say 65 70 percent of those animals are not enjoyable <laughs> to hunt. Uh, they've got big motors they're a long ways away they're going to get you into places that you've never been before uh, you're going to be crossing rivers that you didn't think a dog would cross you're going to be you know miles away from where you turn loose by the end of the night and so they can be work but a vast majority of ours are can be pleasure too but uh, most of that is going to be you know, through the training process, you know, these dogs are sharp. They're going to know what their owner wants and, and what you're, what you're gearing them towards. And that's what they're going to be a vast majority of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think a, a good analogy, or at least like the, the most extreme example I can think of, of the differences between a pleasure dog and a, a competition dog is probably in the bird dog world with, you know, pointers and setters where we're, those folks are following pointers and centers around all day on horseback to keep up with yep. them yep. and to observe them. And if I try to pluck one of those dogs out of that world and bring it to Iowa to hunt fence rows for pheasants, you know, it's going to be nothing but frustration for me, yep. even though it's all sort of bird hunting, you know, yep. I always, I kind of equate it to retrievers sometimes too, because it doesn't take much of a dog to go get a duck. Uh, it doesn't take much of a dog to go tree a coon. Uh, going to tree a coon, you know, is is pretty low on the on the standard bar. But you know, to do a three hundred and fifty yard blind with a poison bird in the way, and to not have any faults and get that dog and deliver it to hand and do it again as soon as he pulls back and focus on the next one, that's difficult. And so you nailed it when you said that all these events are geared towards the higher echelon of dog, of dog talent and the best competition dogs don't always make the best field dogs in a lot of sports. Mm -hmm. If we're just going to look at, uh, raccoon hunting, uh, generally as, as a pastime for leisure, our audience is, you know, 
they live on homesteads, acreages, sometimes big farms and ranches. Um, they love the idea of dogs that have jobs to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so I also love bird hunting. And so I'm, I occasionally try to bring kind of uh, hunting dogs into the mix, but raccoon hunting seems to have an extra barrier to it. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of like a lifestyle, right? Yep. You're not just rolling over on Saturday morning and saying, yeah, I could have breakfast and be out there chasing pheasants around by 10 a.m. Yep. No, you kind of, it's, it's hard to dabble in coon hunting, isn't it? Um, it can be, but not always. Uh, there are certain breeds. Uh, take a guy that just wants to uh, not compete and have a dog that's good around the house and can do multiple things and also still go through. There's, there's the tree and curs. You know, there's the, mm -hmm. the mountain curs, the camera curs, the stuff like that, that maybe you want to go walk around the woods in the daytime and tree a few squirrels or a possum or get some varmints out of your yard. Or maybe you want to go out at night and walk that dog in the same woods and tree a coon. They can do that. They're very good multi-purpose dogs. Um, they'll, they're good about hunting around you and they're also good around the farm. They're good about keeping animals out of your yard. Uh, they're good about being a one person dog and a family dog. And the feist are the same way. So there are tree and breeds that are not hounds that make fantastic family dogs plus hunting dogs where you can do uh, night sports with them. And, and tree, it's okay. Like if my dog trees a possum, it's the end of the world. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what is he, what is he doing? Or a squirrel during the day, if I'm happen to have him running loose during the day, you know, that's no good. But with a cur or a, just a versatile dog, you know, you can do all those things and it's okay. And they still make a very good family dog as well. Mm -hmm. And some curs out there are actually still used for herding as well. So there is that crossover. We, yep. we are always on the podcast kind of chasing the mythical, uh, ideal all purpose farm dog, you know? Yep. And so I, I could see it leaning in that direction toward the curs and the feist as well. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. So talk to us a little bit about uh, Joy Pet Food and High Standard Pet Food. Um, it's not a brand that I run across here yeah. in Iowa. And yet you're just, I mean, you and I could be doing this in person in a couple hours if we wanted yeah. to. So uh, tell, tell us about the brand and the company and its history and how you got involved and connected with them. Uh, Joy Dog Food is actually one of the older uh, pet food companies in the world. We started in 1945. Uh, the Kosher family has been involved with Joy Pet Food pretty much uh, throughout his existence. I believe it was one in 2011 uh, that Joy had sold, may have been before that. I think Wade had bought it in 2011, but I could be wrong. Uh, I need to brush up on my Joy history a little bit. <laughs> but uh, the Kosher family had it, and uh, they sold they sold it to a large conglomerate uh, in the 2000s. And they kind of let the brand go away and, and die out a little bit. And Wade, who had started High Standard Pet Food at the time, uh, purchased Joy Dog Food and started making Joy Dog Food again and came out with good, solid uh, working dog formulas because Wade is a coon hunter, too. Uh, what a lot of folks don't understand is the owner of Joy Pet Food owns uh, half of these dogs that I'm hunting. And he loves to coon hunt and he loves hounds and he loves working dogs in general. And so... They've kind of geared that market, and when Wade picked it up and Chip Kozier Jr. Uh, working for Wade as well at the time, 
he took over as part of the sales staff and they just kind of went back to their roots and they used family owned independent feed stores, which there's not enough of anymore. And they won't sell to anybody else. They uh, mm. use independent distributors, family owned businesses. And so it does make it a little tricky to get joy dog food. Sometimes uh, we're not in tractor supply. We're not in Orchlands. We're not in the big farm and home stores. Uh, we're in locally owned, individually owned businesses. And so it is a well-known brand and we have a very good footprint as far as the hunting dog world and the working dog world, but we don't have as big a footprint as we'd like as far as being able to get the dog food. And so we're working on that. Uh, we, we like to support small business and we like to support working dogs and don't get me wrong. Joy dog food wants to feed every dog on the planet, <laughs> whether, <laughs> whether it be a lasso opso on somebody's couch in in LA or, you know, a, a hardcore working dog, but our bread and butter is working dogs and it always has been because that's what enthuses us. Uh, that's where we are interested in. And that's when I came about, uh, about two and a half years ago, I believe. And, uh, they had called me, I had switched to joy dog food before that, uh, from another very good brand of dog food. And I liked the results. I liked the product. And, uh, they had reached out to me about maybe coming to work for them and on their sales staff and, Next thing you know, here I am doing their podcast and doing their live feeds and, and still doing a little bit of sales work, not near as much as I used to, but um, I'm very happy with the company and it's a small family owned business that I, I like to get behind. From your, the podcast episodes of yours that I've listened to, a lot of your guests are kennel owners. And so do you, is a big part of Joy's business in, you know, directly supplying, um, larger kennels in, in the working dog world or yeah, you know, do they buy it direct from joy or do they buy it from the same independently owned farm stores and feed stores that everybody else would? Um, that's, we like to use, uh, family owned distri distribution too. And so what we do is we get a company or an individual sometimes, uh, the distributor right here, uh, around my house is my hunting buddy that I've known since I was a little kid. And, he bought a semi-loaded joy dog food and then he takes it around to some large kennels and some individually owned stores too. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it has to do with the distribution in the area. Uh, we have large distributors too. West Plains vet supply out of uh, Springfield, Missouri and West Plains, Missouri will cover, I, I believe five States. And so what we do is when someone buys a semi-loaded dog food off joy, we give them an area. Uh, and we won't deliver to the kennels in that area, uh, because that just takes away from the distrib distributor. Um, we don't, we don't personally ship any dog food into those places. And so it's up to the distributor in certain areas to, uh, distribute the dog food. Like in Iowa, for instance, we have, uh, Hall Roberts up in Postville, Iowa. Uh, they are a distributor of ours and they cover pretty much everything from Des Moines Northeast up into Minnesota, Wisconsin. And then uh, Deluxe Animal Health in Northwest Iowa uh, to cover everything west of I-80 and up into South Dakota. And uh, the Noe Brothers right here by, my, by the house cover pretty much everything, or I'm sorry, west of I-35, everything south of I-80, you know, that's going to go through the Noe Brothers. And so a lot of it depends on the distribution. Um, some distributors will go straight to a kennel. Some distributors only deal with storefronts, and we leave that up to them. And 
I know it sounds complicated and it is, but that's just the cost of doing business with family owned organizations. Sure. Sure. Uh, tell me a little bit about what makes a, a good feed for working dogs and what you appreciate. You, you mentioned that you went, you switched to joy before even going to work for them. So, well, what, what caused you without, you know, you don't have to talk about the other brand too much, but what caused you to make the switch? What did you like about joy and high standard? Uh, the reason I switched personally was because of what they were doing for hound sports. Uh, we're kind of a ridiculed, often ridiculed sport. Uh, people don't understand it really well. And uh, Joy kind of threw their their hat in the ring and and backed us. And I thought, you know, if they've got a good dog food, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with them. You know, they mm -hmm. they support our our lifestyle and they support working dogs, so I'm gonna give it a shot. And the product was great. Uh, the dogs maintained a healthy hair and coat. Uh, they the kennels were clean. You know, I didn't have a lot of loose stool things like that that you're looking at when you got dogs that stay in kennels like I do a majority of the time. Uh, they were able to maintain that weight no matter how hard I was working them. Uh, they had enough formulas to, you know, cause every dog's different. I've got real low metabolism, older females that, that can get by really good on one formula, even when I'm hunting them, but on another, they may gain too much weight. And so there were enough formulas there that I could, uh, use it on individual dogs, but also there wasn't so many that I didn't have to go through 10 pages to see you know, and try to 50 different formulas before I figured out which one was going to work for my dog. And so, uh, it was a quality product and I knew it from the first time I fed it. And I, I made my living in this sport on my word and my honesty and all that stuff. And so I didn't want to back anybody or go to work for anybody just because of the money or none of that stuff. I wanted to make sure it was a good product first, because, you know, my, my name means more to me than whatever I could make someone pay me. And so that worked out. Uh, I've really enjoyed my time with joy dog food and I hope it continues for a long time, but it was great, a great product for my dogs and just about every working dog. Anyway, they got a, they got a good formula for everybody. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a go-to formula that you start with until the dog shows you it's not working for that particular dog? Like what's your standard? I would suggest always going with the 2420 high energy. That's probably our best seller amongst working breeds. Um, it's a real palatable formula. It's got the pumpkin meal in it. So it's, it's good, easily digested. Uh, the dogs aren't going to have to eat a lot of it, you know, to maintain, but not every dog does the same on every formula. And there are dogs out there where we don't have a formula for, I'm sure. I haven't seen very many, if any, uh, but we don't, you know, we're not above recommending another, another dog food company or another dog food formula to somebody who's not working it out with joy. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's not a big deal to us, but 99.99% of the time, we're going to have something that works and our sales staff and our office staff is always really available. If anybody's got any questions, you know, you, it, it's not very many companies that you can dial up the office and say, let me talk to the owner and the owner will call, talk to you and let you know what you need to be doing. And we're a small company, family owned company like that. And so, you know, we can, we can work it out no matter what the breed, no matter what the job, you know, we, we've probably got something that's going to suit you. Mm -hmm. R remind me and our audience what the 2420 stands for. Yep. It is 24% protein, 20% fat. Um, and that's misleading in a lot of I listen to your dog food podcast. 
<laughs> and you're right. You made some awesome points in there, Aaron. Um, the feeding standards on the back of the bag, I always suggest people don't worry about them. Don't even look at them. Uh, don't pay any attention to them because we're required to put those on there. Um, what I like to do is have the customer call me, let me know what their dog's doing, let me know what they were feeding before they switched, and we'll let you know how much you should feed the dog. But I always say cut them back by 80% when you switch, or 20% when you switch, uh, mm. at least. Um, even half, depending on the formula that you're coming from. Because what you did mention in that was KCALs per cup, and that was probably one of the most important things that you're going to read on the back of a dog food bag. Um the chicken meal, the byproduct meal, the beef meal, all that stuff, um, that can be misleading too because, yes, that's going to be your first ingredient in most high-quality dog foods is the protein source. Um, that byproduct meal, that's nothing. there's nothing wrong with byproduct meal either, but it can't be beaks and feathers and, and chicken feet, just like mm -hmm. you said. Uh, we're real picky about the byproduct meal we use. Uh, anything that uses an organ, for instance, has to be a byproduct meal. And oh, really? So, yes. If we have lungs, livers, things like that, which are fantastic for dogs, uh, it has to be a byproduct. meal. And so that's really, that can be misleading too. You know, you'll have the, the folks that say a byproduct of any kind is bad, but that's not always the case. Uh, the best I can advice I can give for anybody switching dog foods, and it doesn't have to be to joy, um, mix it half and half for a week and then go straight to that dog food and just see how your dog reacts. Because mm -hmm. there are a lot of other good dog food brands out there too, not just Joy. And so just get the best dog food you can afford, but don't get crazy, just like you said in your podcast. I mean, some of these dog foods are outrageous. Um, ours is climbing in price because of the pro of the material that we have to put in it and the ingredients that we have to put in it too. But uh, there are a lot of mid-level dog foods that are going to keep the hardest work. We, we feed sled dogs. We feed bird dogs, we feed coon hounds, we feed stock dogs, we feed everything. And most of these companies do the same thing. But just, you got to try it. And that, that is the hard part about deciding what dog food is the best for your dogs is you do have, it is a lot of trial and error. But <laughs> with Joy, um, you know, mix it half and half, go straight to Joy after three or four, five, six days, maybe even a week. And you're going to see some positive results and you're going to see cleaner kennels if your dog's in a kennel you're going to see less stool even if your dog's running loose uh you're going to see a healthier skin and coat and you're going to see a quality healthy dog and and that's all that we're all striving for because i'm a dog owner first way before i want to sell a bag of dog food the the 2420 um seems like a trend we we've talked to uh, one other dog producer on this podcast that also focused on working dogs and that was kind of their principal formula too like or at least the one that they recommend most of the time is the 2420 it seems not like not that long ago and this you know tells you how i'm getting up there in age because it was probably 20 years ago but it seemed like the formula for the recommendation for working dogs just the standard thing you'd read in magazine articles and such was 30 20. Mm -hmm. is that a change or is it you know just a difference from one um product to another or one manufacturer to another it it is going to vary because where you get your protein and your fat source is going to make a difference um if i've got lentils or peas or or something like that that has a vegetable of some sort that has protein in it 
that's going to affect where uh, the thirty twenty comes from. And a dog is not going to absorb that out of a certain meal or a certain source like it is going to be, you know, just a meat of some kind. But as generally speaking, uh, 30-20, if you've got dogs that are working really hard and they're tearing muscle fiber and they're you're trying to build them up and you're trying to put bulk on the dog, then more protein, just like an athlete. Uh, if I'm if I'm lifting heavy five days a week, I got to eat a lot of protein. Um, if I'm doing you know ten hours of cardio a week, I don't really need that much. Uh, I'm not trying to build muscle. Protein's going to build muscle. Uh, carbohydrates are going to uh, give you energy. And so, for younger dogs, uh, I suggest a higher protein diet. Uh, when they hit 13, 14, 15 months old, you know, I'm switching them to a little bit lower protein. Puppies, of course, need a higher protein diet. Uh, smaller dogs, they do not need a lot of protein. Um, there's not a lot of muscle there to build. Uh, I think the protein and this, I'm not a vet and I don't want to, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I don't think the protein's benefiting them. And it may be even a little harder on a smaller dog. Um, a larger dog even at a certain age, they're, they're not going to need that much protein. If you've got your dog built up to where it needs to be and you want to just maintain it, then the 2420 formula or 2618 or even high standard has a 2316 formula that I run in the summer a lot. That is a very good formula for adult dogs. Um, you're just looking at waist, weight gain, muscle mass, all that things. But I mean, you really got to eyeball your dog. Uh, if you want more muscle, you need more protein. If you want, uh, a little more energy, a little more stamina, maybe a lower protein, higher fat, higher carbohydrates, the type diet's going to fit it better. Okay. That's helpful. Um, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here with at least what I think is a tough question. And it's kind of, uh, hard for me to articulate, but suppose I have been loyal to the same brand of dog food my whole life and it just because it's never caused me any problems. So I assume it's, it's doing a good, it's doing what it needs to do for my dogs. Um, and I'm out there running a bird dog or a coon hound, or even my stock dog every day, uh, tough weather conditions, tough terrain. And they're putting in five, six hours of work a day on the farm. What sorts of things do, would I look for or, or what, how, what would I notice first if the dog food was just failing me. Uh, I mean, how do I know the difference between, boy, I should really try a different formula of dog food because I think that he shouldn't be getting tired this quickly versus this is like, this is all I've ever seen. So I just assume that that's the optimum uh, that I'm getting the most out of my dog that I possibly could. What are the indicators that I might want to try a different feed? Um, it's mostly weight. Uh, and the amount, amount you're having to feed the dog. Uh, we, we like to look at what comes out of the dog too. And that's not always possible with a dog that's running loose on the farm or something like that too. You're not, you're not seeing every stool that dog makes, but weight gain and weight maintenance and stool are about the, probably the, the most important things you're going to be able to see. And, and that's, that takes going out and looking at someone else's dog that maybe didn't uh, break down as fast. Or something like that too say you guys are or you're running cattle out of some brush or something like that and it's an eight hour job uh you know you got you got three dogs your buddy's got three dogs and his three dogs are still going hard and yours are broke down by by lunchtime 
uh, you're going to have to look at his dogs, how they look physically. And sometimes it's, it's a very small tail, you know, with hounds, it's different because they're short haired. Uh, I can see every muscle on their body. I can see every bone, every, everything, but with a long haired dog, it's difficult. So feel the dog, uh, feel how he's maintaining weight. If he's maintaining his weight, uh, the way he should, then that is to me, a, a preparation thing. You know, if they're, if they're web, if their weight's good, if they're maintaining what they're, what they're doing with the workload that they have, then maybe that dog's just not in good enough shape. And that dog's going to get, have to start getting out earlier and start doing more. And you're going to have to build that dog up to get to where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. What's the connection between, uh, is there a connection between the, the food that you're feeding your dogs and heat in cold tolerance? You mentioned heat earlier in the, in the episode here, when you were talking about running your dogs and how it can actually get dangerous. If you know that you, if you're not running them enough under those kind of conditions. I don't think it's as much, uh, ingredients, uh, protein versus fat, all that stuff. You hear that, that tossed around a lot. It's more feeding time, uh, when you feed the dog and it's more, what kind of shape is your dog in, uh, to, to work in a very hot, hot climate, your dog has to be in fantastic shape. Uh, they can't have any extra fat. Uh, they can't have, you know, they, their, their lung capacity has got to be good. They've got to be in shape before you ever turn them loose in that. It's hard to get a dog in shape once it gets hot. Uh, they need to be in shape before it gets hot. But feeding time to me is the most relevant thing when it comes to heat. Uh, we feed our dogs at night. Uh, on nights I don't hunt, I feed them at dark. Uh, on nights I do hunt, I feed them after I'm done hunting because just food is going to cause a little extra heat and that's going to cause your dog to get hot. Mm. If you're, if you're 12 hours from feeding time before you turn them loose again, that dog's empty. And that is how dogs have hunted and dogs have worked for as long as there've been wolves on this planet is empty. You don't see full wolves running down and, and killing another elk. Uh, we will, we like to work them empty. Uh, it, it takes away the, the heat that they're just building up in their body through digestion. And so that's more important to me than what is actually in the dog food. Uh, you hear high protein makes dogs work, run hot, uh, corn and as an ingredient makes dogs run hot. And it probably does if it's still in their system, whenever you're, you're putting that work mm. in. And so feeding time is more important, uh, than ingredients, protein, fat levels, things like that. Roading dogs is, you know, kind of a big deal in the bird dog world, you know, hooking them up to a bar on a, oftentimes a Jeep or an ATV or something, and just going down the road and having them constantly pulling out there in front of the ATV, picking a speed that they're just straining to, to run on, um, out you know, faster, they're trying to run faster than the ATV actually is. Um, do you do any of that with coonhounds? We do. We, I've got roading bars on my ATV. Uh, I don't run them off the side by side very often cause I don't have any bars on that, but yeah, I got, uh, two roading bars that fold out off the rack on my ATV. And then I put them in a harness, uh, that way there's not, cause I mean, there's, there's lots of things in their neck that I don't want them pulling on very hard when I'm doing 10 miles an hour on an ATV. So I use a harness on my but it's very common, uh, roading and also slap mills, uh, guys 
use slap mills to uh, run their dogs inside their sheds or their kennels or something like that. And that's a wonderful tool. I need to get me one. I've ran dogs on them before, but I've never owned one. But uh, a lot of guys do, and that's pretty common as well. Okay, slat mill being like uh, like a giant hamster wheel. A giant hamster wheel. It's a treadmill with slats, pretty much, but it's powered by the dog instead of being plugged in. I see. Okay. So the, the dogs, they they get strapped in on a harness. There's a bar right above the harness where they snap them in on a snap. Dog starts walking. Next thing you know, the dog's trotting, and uh, it's more like running uh, on a roading bar than, a, than an actual treadmill. Okay. And when you are doing your roading, uh, with the harnesses, is, is there a, like, um, do you use a section of bungee cord or something so that there's, there's stretch and, and resistance as they pull ahead? Uh, no, I don't use a lot of stretch. My roading bars have chain, uh, just enough chain to where they can't reach the tires of whatever I'm driving the ATV. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, that's it. But you know, when them dogs do get used to roading, they really enjoy it. And they are pulling that ATV more than you're even giving it gas. I bet I get 50 miles of a gallon. <laughs> I've got a couple dogs on there. They're kind of like sled dogs. Yeah. But, you know, I, I prefer just a regular chain. Uh, usually it's about an eight inch chain hooked onto their harness and then they can't, I don't have to worry about them getting under the wheels and I can watch where I'm driving and then off the dogs go. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do need use to the harness before you hook them up. Uh, I will tie, I got tie outs in my yard that are on, uh, above ground or above deals with pulleys, you know, like a clothesline or something like that. And then I'll put them in the harness and tie them on that for a few days before I ever try to road them. Cause the harness does weird them out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'd be really curious to know farm dog audience, if this is a tool that anybody uses in the stock dog training world, I suspect that the, the going full speed only happens in short bursts with stock dogs and for not an extended period of time. And so therefore it may not be as useful, but if anybody knows of that being a tool, I'd love to learn more. So drop me an email at farmdogpodcast.com. You can go there and find an email form. Um, I'd love to hear your comments on that. Well, excellent. This has been a great conversation. Um, Let me ask the, before, before I let you go, though, let me ask you this. You've done, uh, you've got a, a good history of podcasts on the Fueled by Joy Working Dog podcast. Um, what is the, can you just like rattle off the breeds of, of dogs you've talked about on the podcast in terms of, because I've just listened to a couple and you were largely interviewing the owners of kennels. So yeah. what types of breed kennels have you uh, talked to out there? All right, we've done uh, Boykin Spaniels, uh, Labrador Retrievers, Beagles, Dream Walkers. Um, we've done one with Catahoulas, I believe. Oh, my gosh. Now you're really putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, Skur Dogs, uh, Feists. Uh, we've yet to do any Border Collie folks, and I really want to. Um, we've done, uh, French Britneys. Okay. William, William Newby talked French, French Britneys, uh, German short hairs as well. Basically, if it's a dog with a job, we're interested in it anyway. We've done some protection dogs. Callie Simpson was talking about doing her, uh, shepherds and Malinois and stuff. Um, we've done a little bit of everything, but there's a lot of stuff we haven't touched. And the herding dog is one of them. So if any of your 
listeners or guests, former guests, whatever that, that have the herding dogs and especially the ones that do the trials because competition just, it, it really enthuses me. I'd love to have them on the podcast. Yeah. Excellent. And I told you that was going to be my last question, but now I've come up with another question. So, uh, here on the farm dog podcast, we talk about stock dogs a lot. We venture into some more all purpose farm dogs, but another common topic is livestock guardian dogs. And I can't think of a more unique, uh, type of dog than livestock guardian dogs. And when it comes to dog food, I'm a little bit stumped. So, yeah, I don't know how familiar you are with the livestock guardian dog breeds and what their role is, but um, you know we're talking about really big dogs who work really hard at night, chasing away predators and patrolling their area, and they sleep all day long, typically, yep. <laughs> right? Uh, and they're often in pastures. They don't get fed by hand every day. They often nope. are using um, self-feeders out on pasture. And so I'm curious if you have a formula from joy that you would recommend for that type of situation, or would you be most, would you be concerned about a dog overeating if you put one of your more high-end formulas in front of them all the time? This, I'm, I'm always trying to, uh, figure out this puzzle of the unique challenges of livestock guardian dogs. So how can you help us? Um, the ones that I'm familiar with are Kangles and Great Pyrenees. I believe, like in my area, Great Pyrenees are the most popular livestock guardian dog. Um, I've got a brother with uh, three of them and free-range chickens, a lot of free-range chickens. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he has three Great Pyrenees. He also has a Kangle. Uh, my uncle has some Great Pyrenees. Our maintenance 2212 on those dogs with auto feeders that are out in a pasture is perfect for those breeds for those large breeds. And those are the only two I'm familiar with. Uh, once they're adults, uh, and most of the time, uh, the Pyrenees they're, they're in, they're in the chicken yard and they're in the chicken fence, uh, when they're young, but they're also getting kenneled up at night, uh, from what my experience, and I don't have any experience with sheep or cattle, but, uh, those dogs are, are going to get a higher protein, uh, higher fat because they're still growing. But once they are adults, our maintenance twenty two twelve and the high standard side, the uh, twenty three sixteen select is fantastic feed for those dogs. Um, they can eat enough to satiate them, where they're not grouchy, uh, but they also are not getting so many calories when they get their stomach full that they're gonna they're gonna gain a lot of weight. And so that's. That's my best advice for those breeds. Uh, good thing about those dogs is they're, despite how hard they work, they're pretty easy keepers. And some dog breeds are like that. You know, they're they're good about maintaining their own weight on auto feed. Like my hounds would just blow up if I I could feed them, <laughs> I could feed them eight percent protein and six percent fat. And if I would put them on auto feed, they would weigh two hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the livestock guardian dogs through the fantastic breeding and the genetics because that's what they've been doing for so long is out in the pasture with eating pretty much whatever they feel like eating uh they're really good about maintaining themselves i have definitely found that to be true maybe our audience members will have a comment on this too but um the livestock guardian dogs at my place they're big big dogs i'm shocked at how little they eat Um, and in fact i found that hand feeding them can almost be detrimental um, because they'll try, they'll eat whatever I give them, no matter how much I give them, they'll eat all of it right away. So it's not stolen from them yeah. by yeah. the sheep and goats. 
And so I think that they actually eat less when they're on a self feeder that's protected from the sheep and goats than they do when I hand feed them. Yep. No, I think that's one of the breeds that thrive on self feed, uh, is the livestock guardian stuff or one of the classes of breeds, but they do really well feeding themselves and nothing, it doesn't have to be nothing fancy usually to them, but you know, you'll get an odd dog. There's dogs that are, or that keep different than others. And so they may need a little something more, a little something less. But as a general rule, the 2212 or the 2316, both are very good feeds for those dogs. Okay. And just to clarify, we've been throwing around two brands, actually. There's Joy Pet Food and there's High Standard Pet Food. It's the same company. You just use the brands differently in different regions of the U.S.? Uh, Wade actually started high standard before he bought joy. And when they reformulated the both formulas or both brands are the same dog food. And so a 30, 20 high standard is the same as 30, 20 joy. Uh, the 23, 16 only comes in high standard, but other than that, they're pretty much all the same dog food and high standard. You're going to find out West of the Mississippi, you know, if you get very far out West, especially and then joy is going to be more in the eastern half of the united states okay great josh this has been fun is there anything you'd like to tell our audience on our way out the door here any a place where they can find more information about you about your podcast about coon hunting and about your brand yeah uh, they can go to uh, joydogfood.com uh, highstandard.com i believe it's highstandard dog food i haven't been on that website for a long time the most of the stuff i do is with joy uh, but yeah, we're very active on social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, whole works. Um, if you guys have any questions about dog food in general, uh, give me a holler and we'd, we'd love to hear from them. Very good. Thank you so much, Josh. It's been a blast. I really appreciate, uh, all your knowledge about coon hunting and, uh, pet food. It is a constant concern from our audience, uh, how do I how do I find a good value in food? How do I make sure that I'm feeding something that's good, getting the best out of my dog and giving it the longest, healthiest possible life? So thanks so much for coming on, and we'll talk again in the future. I appreciate you having me, Aaron. I had a blast. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Farm Dog. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please subscribe, leave us a positive review, and tell someone about it. Thanks. Thanks.